Morning, church. Turn with me to Isaiah 58 this morning in your copy of the scripture so you can follow along as I read through that passage. If you're a guest, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. Love to meet you after the service. If you'd be so bold, I'll be down front after the service. Love to meet you if you would come on down. If not, make sure you stop by the welcome booth after the service. It's in the welcome center. Pick up a copy, a little book I've written titled Following Jesus. It'll help you get to know us as a church. This book will. This book explains what we call our disciple-making target, which is on the screen. Disciples are those who follow Jesus, and our aim is to help people follow Jesus. We represent that pictorially um, with this little target. As you read through the book uh, that is available at the Welcome Booth, and it occurs to me, maybe you're a longtime attender, you've never read the book, grab one on your way out this morning. As you read the book, you'll learn that we believe there are four primary activities of a disciple-making church, a church that's helping people follow Jesus. Proclaiming the gospel, restoring the broken, equipping believers, and then sending out disciples. We have a whole bunch, dozens of high school kids going out Tuesday to to the DR. So we have a whole bunch that we're sending. We just sent a women's trip out. We'll send Jeff and Grace Larson out this morning at the end of the service. We'll pray for them, commission them. So we proclaim, restore, equip, and send. That's what we believe. Those are the activities we believe helps people follow Jesus. These four activities are aimed at cultivating eight attributes in the lives uh, of those who are part of our church. In other words, we do these four things, proclaim, restore, equip, and send, to produce eight particular outcomes, attributes. We admit there could be 80 attributes. There probably are 80 attributes of a disciple. These eight, though, we are certain of. We're certain that those who are following Jesus will increasingly produce these uh, qualities, these attributes, these outcomes in their lives. For example, the second of the eight attributes, which is chapter four in the little book, the second of the eight attributes is worships in life continually. So we proclaim, what do we proclaim? We proclaim the gospel. That is, salvation's by grace, we're to receive salvation, and then we're to live lives of worship continually. That's generally the proclamation. Salvation by grace, respond in faith, live lives of worship. The call to follow Jesus is an invitation to offer our whole lives, bodies, minds, careers, families, friendships, every aspect of our being to God. That's worship, meaning worship's not a part of our lives, it's the whole of our lives. It's not a singular Sunday or once a week activity. Yes, this is a worship service, meaning we give God praise, but it also means that we equip equip those that are part of it to go out and continue in lives of worship. Worship is our life. How do we know if we're growing as worshipers? What might be the litmus test for the second of the eight attributes of a disciple? Do you remember the litmus paper from high school chemistry class? Not good memories for me, (laughs) high school chemistry class. Litmus paper, those thin strips of paper that when dunked in the Petri dish indicate whether the the solution's a basic solution, alkaline, or it's acidity. If you're looking for the litmus test for a life of worship, we're looking for something that'll give us a clear indication 
of whether or not we're growing as worshipers. In the New Testament book of James, we get an indication of what that might look like. What might the litmus test for worship be? James writes, if anyone considers himself religious, do we think ourselves religious? He says, if anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, watch what's coming out of his mouth, her mouth. He deceives himself and his religion's worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, the Apostle James, who wrote those words, was Jewish. He was the half-brother of Jesus, meaning they shared in common the same mom, Mary, which means he was raised in a uh, devout Jewish home. So I wonder how he might have gotten the idea that the litmus test for worship was, number one, how we control our tongues, or whether we control our tongues. Number two, whether or not we care for the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. And number three, whether or not we stay unpolluted by the world, the world around us. Where would he get that idea? We probably got it, at least in part, from Isaiah 58. So he was thoroughly devout, thoroughly Jewish, right? His older brother Jesus, steeped in scriptures, he's familiar with Isaiah 58, right? Follow along as I read. Isaiah 58, the prophet says, Shout it aloud, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. What, what might those be? For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if there were a nation that does, as if they were a nation that does what's right and has not forsaken the commands of his God, of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near to them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you've not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? We'll pause there. The original audience receiving this prophecy, these prophetic words, were the descendants of Jacob, which is the nation of Israel, living, albeit in Babylonian captivity at this time. Israel's capital city, Jerusalem, had been overrun and their temple had been burned by foreign invaders and much of the population had been deported. Being away from the temple, they didn't have the opportunity to offer sacrifices as instructed in the Mosaic law, but they were still performing religious rituals such as fasting in an effort to demonstrate their devotion. Fasting, that is going without food or drink for some period of time, was a part of the ritual of prayer, most likely a weekly activity, perhaps a bi-weekly activity for those that were really religious was in an effort to seek after God, seemingly. But their religious efforts weren't having the effect that they had hoped. It's true that they were seeking God, verse two says as much, they seek me out. And it's true that they seemed earnest. The prophet 
says as much. They seem eager to know my ways. And it's true that they were praying. They were asking God for decisions. That's in verse 2. So all this gave the appearance of a nation that does what's right, verse 2, and does not forsake, has not forsaken the commands of its God. But their, religi- their religious motions weren't gaining them any momentum. It's easy to go through the motions, isn't it? Maybe church attendance is a motion that comes easy for you. Employees can go through the motions, can't they? Putting in time, but not actually doing any work. They sit at their desk without being productive. They wonder why they aren't promoted and why their company struggles. Students can go through the, emotion, through the motions, can't they? Students can invest. Uh, they can show up to class but fail to invest in the learning experience. Athletes can come to practice seemingly interested in winning but not actually putting in the effort. They have their cleats on, they're wearing their pads, they're running the drills, they lack the heart. They lack the intensity, the devotion needed to actually win games. In each case, those participating aren't really understanding what is expected or needed in the workplace or in the classroom or on the athletic field. And the same was true for Israel and can still be true for God's people this morning. Israel's religious motions weren't gaining them the momentum that they wanted and they didn't understand why. So they ask, why have we fasted? Verse 3, and you've not seen it. In other words, we're doing the work, God. (laughs) Why aren't you answering? Well, let's continue reading. Here's why. Verse, uh, technically it's 3b, so halfway through 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And then he gives some examples of what that looks like. And exploit all your workers. Now, if we're employers, we should listen really carefully here. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. So quarreling, what's coming out of their mouths, strife, the dissension being stirred up. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You can't go through the motions in this way and expect to win games or get A's or for the company to succeed. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? That's kind of the uniform for fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Although it's true that they were praying and fasting, even wearing sackcloth and ashes, which was the ancient expression of sorrow over one's sin and repentance from sin, they weren't treating others well. 
They were going through the religious motions, but at the same time they were acting wicked towards one another, quarreling, strife, um, exploiting their workers if they were employers, physically fighting with each other, wicked fists. They looked pious to a degree. They looked religious, their motions. They looked like a team all week during practice, not much of a team on game day. <laughs> Ever have that experience? They were doing the things that righteous folks do, fasting, sackcloth, ashes, but their attitude towards one another and their treatment of each other and others were wicked, which meant that their faith in God was at best self-serving, self-interested. It's like the athlete who does the drills, which earns the starting spot but then treats their fellow teammates with contempt. Ever been on a team like that? And then spends their season wondering why they don't win games. Ever been on a team that's excellent at drills because everybody's working really hard to get the coach's attention, but perhaps off the field, out of the coach's view, maybe on the field? They treat each other with contempt. Not, not uncommon. Happens in office culture all the time as employees work to please the boss, hoping for promotions and bonuses, but then they treat their coworkers poorly and wonder why they're miserable at work or hate their job. Israel was fasting in order to simply get something from God. Verse 3 says it. Are we fasting for no good reason here? Don't you see? We're putting in the work. They wanted their fasting, their religious motions to gain them credit with God and get something from God. Yet they were treating each other poorly. Rather than fasting to know God better, which always produces, a, it's a humbling experience to know God better. Fasting produces humility so that we can better reflect God's love to others. Remember, fasting's not wrong. They just weren't doing it for the right reasons. They were running the religious drills, all the while not realizing that the treatment of one another was preventing their prayers from being answered. You can't fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You can't go through these religious motions, treating others with contempt and expect your voice, your prayers to be heard. Isaiah's straight with them. God won't answer your prayers if you're treating others poorly, which reminds me of the Apostle Peter's warning to husbands that the effectiveness of their prayers are directly impacted by how they treat their wife. It's, it's an arresting verse in Peter. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. If we have the sense our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, Isaiah 58.3, the Israelites had a distinct sense their prayers were bouncing off the ceiling, and if you're married, check out how you're treating your spouse. 
We simply can't, here's my summary of Isaiah 58, we can't treat others poorly and think that our faith will be fruitful. We can't expect that we'll actually experience answers to our prayer, joy in our daily lives, peace that passes understanding, healing, knowledge, wisdom to navigate difficult situations. That's the fruitfulness of faith. We can't expect that our, our faith will be fruitful if we're treating one another poorly. It's like 101. Do to others as you'd want them to do to you. We're prone to thinking that our relationship with God is only a matter of relating to God as individuals. But that's like thinking that our relationship with our siblings, I'm one of three, is only a matter of how we relate to our parents. <laughs> Remember John 3.16? God so loved the world, the world, that he sent his son to die. Yes, he loves me individually, he knows me individually. In Isaiah 58, rebukes me individually. <laughs> but he loves all these individuals equally. He loves my brothers and sisters like he loves me. And he's deeply concerned with how we're getting along. And as we grow as disciples, as followers of Jesus, our love for others will increasingly reflect God's love for all people. Our love for others will increasingly, if we're following Jesus, he's going to press us to love others the way he's loved us. There's the gospel. He's loved us perfectly, sacrificially, giving his life on the cross for, for us. If we're following him, we'll increasingly love others that way. Is that the experience others have when they bump into us? All right, verse 6. Here's the type of fasting that God desires. Here are the religious motions, the drills he wants us to run to have the outcomes of fruitful faith. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the yoke, people's burdens. The yoke was that thing oxen put around their neck to pull a burden, a plow or a cart. Untie the cords of the yoke so that people are less burdened. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then look at the benefits. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear, then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, <laughs> 
And if you spend yourselves in, in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness. Anybody feel like they're confused or in a dark situation, need clarity on something? Then your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He'll satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. Strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Sounds pretty good. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and raise up. There'll be restoration. They'll raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets and dwellings. Interestingly, the people of Israel were caught up in an activity that's meant to humble us, fasting is. Remember, fasting is not some, fasting is something we should do. Jesus, when teaching his disciples, said, when you fast. He didn't say, if you fast. He said, when you're fasting, he's assuming that we are fasting. Fasting is actually an excellent discipline for the suburban culture that I like to say is fat and happy. Self-denial supposed to humble us. We all know what hangry is. Snickers made a commercial about it. You go without food and it tests you quickly, reminding you of your frailty, your need for provision. And if it has its appropriate effect, then we're reminded that God provides everything we need, that he's our ultimate resource. Fasting is meant to make us more sensitive to our own as well as to others weaknesses. Fasting is meant, at least in part, to make us painfully aware, right, hunger pains, of our need for God's care, his provision, and alert to those who need care and provision around us. It's really important for rich people like Americans to be fasting because we can become calloused uncaring for those who have needs. But it was instead for Israel being used to try and force God to act on their behalf. You get this? Fasting's meant to humble us, make us aware of our weaknesses, those around us who have weaknesses so that we can step in and meet their needs just as Christ met our needs on the cross. Instead, the Israelites were using fasting as a giant armbar to try and get what they wanted from God. Have we humbled ourselves for nothing? Are you seeing us down here? My butt's in the pew every week. You're not holding up your end of the bargain, religious motions, whatever they may be. Do you see how much I gave last year? God's reply, if you want to give something up, don't give up food. If you want to discipline your, your flesh and practice self-denial, give up treating others poorly. Give up malicious talk. Give up fighting and strife and division. If you want to give something up, if you want to go without food, great. Give it to someone who doesn't have any. 
That's what he's saying. That's the fast I've chosen to meet other people's needs. Give up living for self. Begin to care for others. Seek justice. Defend the weak. Care for those who have no resources. I believe it's only twice in the Old Testament are we encouraged to fast. But there are countless, literally, well, I'm unaware of the count. How about that? There are a whole bunch of charges to care for the impoverished, marginalized, oppressed. God's people are to speak kindly to people. You know, the truth is that we often gravitate towards disciplines like fasting because in abstaining from food and drink, we don't have to relationally engage with others. <laughs> what strikes me about Isaiah 58 is, the fasting, Isaiah 6, 58, 6, is not this what I've chosen, the kind of fast that I've chosen. It requires actually some relational contact. I, it's not just going without a meal, it's getting to know someone who's impoverished or someone who needs a home or someone who needs some clothing. It's got this relational element to it. Fasting can be all about, well, it's something I'm doing. But it should remind us the fasting he wants is for whatever I'm doing to remind me that there are others who have needs. That's the, the outcome that's desired in fasting. Fasting is less risky relationally than caring for the poor and the marginalized. But righteousness is far more than simply saying no to the flesh and fleshly appetites. Righteousness is also saying yes to relationship, to showing and sharing the love of Christ. Are we saying yes to relational connections? then we are, we are following after Christ. If we're saying yes to relationships, if we're thinking about our righteousness simply as kind of a monolithic, silo, individual experience, then that's not what Christ has in mind. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. And we may simply be going through the motions if we're significantly siloed or we're thinking of righteousness as something that I'm going to produce in my flesh. Just kind of on a one-on-one -on -one with God type of thing. You may be going through the motions. I'll give you some examples. You may be going through the motions spiritually if you bolt after worship on Sunday morning. If you, if you make your way to the door, my wife and I, when we were younger, we were dating, attending a church, uh, Calvary, out on Route 59, great church, and we joked, we were in college, so bear with me, okay, give me a little attitude here. We joked about, can we get in the building without shaking anybody's hand? Can we dodge those greeters? And Calvary was... They, were, they worked hard at greeting. Come on, am I the only one? <laughs> Good. I'll take your laughter as you can identify. 
if you bolt for the door after worship, you may be going through the motions. If you, if you never linger to talk to anybody, you're missing what it means to come to church. If you attend church in order to check it off the to-do list in hopes of putting God in the arm bar so to get in prayer, whatever the request might be, the point of being here is being here together. Amen? Yeah. And I know it is risky and it feels more risky for some than others, but generally I know that it feels risky to go into Rathbun Hall after worship and make small talk. I am actually not particularly gifted at small talk. It, um, it takes, it's a discipline for me. I see some of you smiling like, yeah, you've noticed. <laughs> so I know that it's risky to go into Rathbun. It can feel risky, particularly if you're introverted, your natural wiring is introversion. But the point of being here is being together. It's not simply being here. So we have the donuts in there to lubricate the conversation and the coffee. In taking the risk to hang out, you're actually saying in your presence, I value you. And I value you, the other, more than I value my comfort. Is that making sense? Okay. I'm going to make this about us, is what you're saying, instead of simply about me. Because if it were just me, I would be home already, right? I'll give you another example. You may be going through the motions spiritually if you don't sing in worship, or if you sing softly. Again, simply being present isn't the goal. The goal is serving each other. It's connecting to each other. It's caring for one another. Yes, it's a pet peeve of mine. You've, if you've been around long, you've heard me talk about the value of singing. I was at the funeral that Nat was at yesterday. A lot of good things happened in the funeral. It was for a five-year-old. So you go to a funeral for a five-year-old needing ministry. I don't care who you are. You're wanting to meet with the Lord. For me, and a lot of good things happen, for me, the best thing that happened in the service was the singing. Because I expect everybody that got up on the platform would say, well, what I expected them to say. But what I'm listening for is if we buy it. Do we believe it? I expect the preacher to believe it. But frankly, I need to hear more than one person preach. And that's what singing is. There are visitors in the room this morning who will select us. And, and it's, it's almost um, unconscious. But they'll select us based on whether or not we appear to believe it. Do we believe it enough 
to raise our voices even when we sing atrociously. Do you know we're told to sing to one another? We don't sing to placate the musicians among us. We don't. And we don't sing because the preacher and or someone else couldn't find something to say for a full hour. We don't sing to fill time. We sing because we're told to sing to one another. Well, I'll start, I'll start backwards. We, I'll start first things first. We sing because God sings. Do you know God sings? We sing because we're told to sing to each other. We sing because we need to hear from one another. It's the collective preaching effort. And so when you come to church, I'll make it positive, and raise your voice, even though you're uncomfortable singing and you don't like singing, you don't get singing and you can't find the note, you're saying, I love the person next to me enough to make it about us and not simply me. The pause isn't for emphasis. I'm actually trying to hear from the Lord. There's something in this for us. Uh, maybe this is it. Our kids need to attend a singing church. They need to attend a church that isn't going through the motions, isn't putting in their time. But when they show up, they realize they have needs. I came this morning, I have needs. I need the ministry of one to another. But I also realize I have gifts to offer, and so I'm showing up wanting to do the community thing. It's the both and. It, it, it involves me, but it's not about me. It involves you individually, but it's not about you. It's about us. And our kids desperately need a church that isn't going through the motions. That has some volume, right? That has some passion. Because folks, the world is passionate about the sin they're involved in. Have you noticed that? <laughs> they really believe that the sin that they're selling is in the best, it's best for the, the people they're selling and they believe and they're really loud. Where's the voice of the church? <laughs> Says the worship guy. <laughs> All right, so that we can sing, I'm gonna keep moving. You may be going through the motions if you give little time or money to the ministries of the local church. A great service opportunity is the care center. And it's really at the heart of this passage, Isaiah 58. It's really the, the deepest, and you don't, it's not simply the care center. You may be involved in any number of compassion-oriented ministries where you're feeding, 
clothing, providing shelter, uh, reaching uh, the oppressed, that would be the people in jail in our context, or buried under the yoke of debt, maybe you're in a financial ministry. But one ministry you could be a part of here at the church and that we need volunteers for happens the third Wednesday of every month where we invite the community of under-resourced into our building, provide them with a meal, they get to shop for groceries and receive a prayer. How many of us have been a part of the care center? Raise your hand nice and high. It's not about you, it's about us. Yeah. If you've not been a part of the care center, visit our website. Here's a, a picture of the, the webpage that you're looking for on our website. Lots of information. There's a video there. You could get a feel for it. This is our effort to meet tangible needs in our community. In, it's just one of our efforts to meet tangible needs in our community. In the name of Jesus, we want to share the gospel, verbal proclamation, and we want to show the gospel, both and. We also fund in our community caring networks, which cares for moms and dads that are facing unplanned pregnancies. We also partner with Naomi's House that helps formerly trafficked women come out of that and, be, and get healing. And healing is central to Isaiah 58. That's what we expect. When we're, when we're following Jesus, we expect healing in our community. We expect healing in our lives, in our families. All right. I'll close there because I want to sing more than I want to preach. I'll be honest with you. Let me pray. Father, have mercy on us as a church. I pray we'd not go through the motions. I pray we'd find our peace in you. In the name of Jesus, amen.